How would you know if your home is underinsured? With the rising cost of building coupled with the rising cost of insurance, which has followed our seemingly never-ending stream of natural disasters in this country, as well as rising inflation, how are homeowners managing to keep up and ensure they're adequately covered should something happen to their greatest asset? Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxdale's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Today we're joined by an expert in what it costs to build a building, Marty Sadlier, Director of MCG Quantity Surveyors. We first met Marty back in early 2021, episode 164 if you want to go back there, when he brought our attention to exactly how widespread the problem of underinsurance is in this country. Since then we've had widespread flooding with many areas inundated more than once and the problem has expanded from underinsurance to many areas being uninsurable. We've also experienced substantial increases to the cost of building materials and labour. So we've asked Marty back to fill us in on the impact that this has had on Australia's under-insurance problem. Thanks so much for joining us, Marty. It's a bit of a serious topic. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I think it's it just shows how it, why it's so serious because we're still talking about it now and we have for sort of 20 years, you know. But, I mean, have you, have you noticed in the last 12 months that it's just – because of building costs or because of people making cutbacks to, you know, their expenses. I mean, probably counselling prob- uh, policies has been pretty prolific as well. I mean, yeah, what are you noticing there? Yeah, so we're, we're noting lots of different sort of pressures. So, yeah, look, let's just go straight to the category events. The the East Coast floods uh, that we had earlier this year have just come out as being the second biggest natural disaster on record in Australia, second to the, the big hailstorms that we saw in Sydney many right. years ago. So it's number two. So it, it, it's, it wasn't just a small event, I guess. And we already kind of knew that, right? But at least now we've got to, you know, for the people across the country that weren't on the East Coast, get an understanding of just how big that was and how big it is. I mean, you've only got to open the papers today and see the central western New South Wales, Dubbo in particular, Gunnada, they're all mm. underwater, right? So it's not just on the east coast. La Nina is going into a triple dip, a third year. In Australia, we tend to get most of our rainfall in the summer period. Uh, I think it was last Thursday or last Wednesday at 12 noon, Sydney recorded the wettest year on record. Uh, we still have three months to go in this year. So you know, we've got more rainfall to come and we're going to have more issues and more pain points. So what do those events do? Look, you know, you can be insured. That's got nothing to do with underinsurance, but, but how it's going to affect the underinsurance is when all those materials are now required to go to a particular mm. place to be rebuilt, it's putting demand in other areas and it's putting just demand on our resources, our supply chains and what we can get. So even though you may seemingly feel that you are got the right level of insurance on a property, just because of external factors, you're going to be short. And, you know, the time, you know, we talk about, business interruption uh, when we talk about insurance and we also talk about you know, lead times and cost escalations you know, if your property is destroyed today you're not going you're not getting a builder tomorrow and getting it rebuilt straight away so it's actually going to be what's this going to cost next year because that's when they're going to start working on it you know so the factor is or and you know it's not just the cat events it's also the supply chains and all these other issues that we're still trying to get materials in from other countries you know the u.s is you know going through the roof areas that are becoming uh uninsurable like are we seeing you know, if you're thinking about Western Sydney and they're flooded five times in, or Hawkesbury, you know, the, they could get building insurance in 2020, but in 2022, 2023, they can't get insurance or the cost has gone yeah, up, and that's- you know, two, 300% where, you know, you can take insurance, but, you know, you're just going to pay through the nose. Yeah. And look, there's, there is a connection between, uh, you know, under insurance, lack of insurance, um, rental crisis and homelessness, right? They're, they're all very 
uh, interwoven. And the fact is, is that Lismore, I think, has had 17 floods now uh, since they've been recording up there. There are going to be insurers that won't be wanting to go back into certain areas. They'll have to pay out this time, but they're yep. not going to reinsure. Now, there are properties that are still, like, that are probably being repaired right now, right, that are still going to be exposed in the next few months with, you know, more rainfall coming. But the reality will be councils may... So I'll jump back a bit. We talk about whose problem this is. It's not just the property owner's problem. Like, we are all in this together. Like, you know, councils will say, well, it's not our problem. You know, you need to speak with the property owner. Well, hang on a minute. In, say, Lismore, as an LGA, insurance companies may no longer insure property in certain areas of that LGA. Those people will either move from that local government area to another area because they need a job or they need to live somewhere. So that council is going to be impacted by that property being destroyed because they're no longer going to be a ratepayer in that area. They're moving somewhere else. Uh, people who, businesses and people who have lost their properties or homes, whether you're a uh, self-employed or you're an employee, you will have to put bread on the table. You need to keep a job. You may have to move for that. So there's no given that these properties will be rebuilt. We see that with bushfire claims. There won't be a bushfire in the area at all. It might be, have a bow rating of 19. Suddenly a bushfire comes through and destroys a heap of homes. That area has now been rezoned as a flame zone or a yep. bow 40 zone. So to rebuild that property is costing more because it's being built now to a different yeah. code. This is a really interesting thing, right, because we interviewed a historian, Margaret Cook, back in episode 2020, sorry, 2020. <laughs> that sounds like I'm saying the year. 228, right? Hey. And she wrote a book yeah. called um, A River with a City Problem, right? And yep. it traced back the history of development and so it's sort of interesting that some councillors might think oh it's not my problem it's the property owner's problem because you know in that instance and i'm sure in lismore mm. as well there's plenty of evidence of plenty of points of time in in a history of development where the decision could have been made not to build in a floodplain or to stop building in a floodplain yeah. or to to start relocating earlier after earlier floods for instance so that the knock-on effect of of i guess bigger interests than individual owner-occupiers, you know, making their decisions really not in the best interests of necessarily individuals, you know, that is obviously yeah. being impact or being recognised here on a grander scale, especially when you've got a place like Lismore uh, flooded, what, three times now this year? Three or two, twice? It doesn't really matter. Once is bad enough. But, yeah, you know, well, three. Three times. Yeah, and they're going to have issues there. I mean, I think there are two... Uh, two capital cities or two major cities in this country that are on mm. a harbour, uh, Sydney and Newcastle, and the remainder are on a river. Mm. And of the ones that are on a harbour, inadvertently they are mm. connected to rivers, you know, Newcastle with the Hunter River and I think it's the Williams River, uh, and then Sydney, you know, you've got you know the other catchments that are coming in. Um, you know, you've got George's River and Nepean River and Hawkesbury Rivers and all those kind of things that are coming in. Parramatta River obviously connects to the main harbour. So... You know, the reason I mention that is is that these cities have mm. rivers in them and rivers are not, you know, for the intensive purposes, not that harbour which is just tidal, fairly consistent except a king tide, right? You've you've got water coming down these from inevitably mm. a long way mm. away. You know, we're, we're, there, there's a threat in the central west of New South Wales at the moment that is still coming even yeah. though the rain stopped yeah. three days ago. It's the water coming down these rivers. So when we see these places like Lismore, you know, we've had heavy rains in Brisbane and those kind of things, it's still coming down the rivers to them. And and we've we've built on these sort of river plains and these river areas. Uh, and you know, there, there comes a time when the accountability is more than the property owner. You know, there are, there are pressure put on councils to build in these areas. The ABS came out. Uh, earlier this year on the back of some information with the Insurance Council of Australia that 23% of all Australians have no insurance at all. So there's 10.7, I think 10.7 residential or 10, 10.7 million properties in Australia. So you're talking about, about 2.44 million of those properties don't have any insurance at all. Now, when they delved into the demographic of those, they were not in full-time work, they were non-tertiary qualified, they were young, they were in metro areas. Uh, now, these are people who desperately need insurance, but staggeringly, uh, that included mortgaged properties. So you, I don't think it's, 
it, it's okay anymore to say that it's the property owner's problem. You know, it is the council's problem. It's a, also a financier's problem. If a financier isn't worried about whether someone has insurance or not and they're the mortgagee, what hope have we got in terms of education to convince, you know, the end user that they should see the value? It's an it? interesting one, though, because obviously with the loans, it's the finance point of view. It's, you know, something that's afterthought. You know, you purchase the property and then the Uh, bank will basically say to me and then I'll say to the client, hey, you need to get some insurance on this. Oh, right, okay, yeah, how much do I need to cover it for? 350000 Well, some banks just leave it up in the edge as long as you've got some cover. Um, It's really – and that that amount is usually – and sometimes they go off the valuation, you know, but the valuation is usually very – a quick number that they pull out of nowhere sometimes. So, you know, the client's just – you know, in the dark here, they're just literally trying to satisfy that for the bank and, and the minimum required. And then once they've got yeah. the uh, the mortgage, then there's no ongoing checking from the finance company. Not every year you have to upload no, your building and insurance. And so if you cancelled your building insurance, which is quite easy to do, you just don't pay a direct debit. You know, it's like, well, what's the risk? It's unlikely to happen. And then all of a sudden you're uninsured I think completely. it could be even... You know, yeah, I think it could be even less than that, Chris. I, I think that when you look at it, it could just be that uh, a bank's looking at it and going, does that cover even, like if it covers out what we're owed on a property, yep. you know, mm. the tick box is done. Yeah, and we talked about this when we last met, Marty, that the difficulty in actually working out how much to insure your property for. And back then you shared with us the incredible statistic that 83% of Australian homes were underinsured, which is just absolutely staggering i'm guessing that that's gone up firstly but also if you can sort of fill us in on that but also what i'd be keen to talk about is what is the difference between you know what are the what's the problem with getting a value or using evaluation when you're trying to work out how much to insure your property for yeah we see the number to be in the early 90s now and that's on what we can see in the market uh and and that there hasn't been an update from the insurance council of australia on that uh, we would see that it would be at certainly into the 90s. Uh, there are insurers that sort of note that you know 93% of all New South Wales property uh, has no flood cover at all, and those there, there are very big statistics around the level that we've got. The reality will be that people have have used tried to bank off the back of a valuation report. Uh, now, you know, I need valuation reports done on my investment properties and different properties. It, it's tool, you know, very much required, but it's the wrong tool to be establishing what your replacement cost is for insurance purposes. There's a lot more to it, and the reality will be is is that you know the only profession that is out quantifying the costs on a job for a builder, for a developer, for a banker is a quantity surveyor. So a builder doesn't use a valuer to determine what tender he should put in, put in on a job. And a developer doesn't use a valuer to determine you know, what builder they should be picking out of three to, you know, and, and understand the construction costs and manage those. And likewise, either does a financier. But it seems when it came to insurance, that was accepted. You know, we can just use a valuer's report. Now, Likewise, uh, none of those professions use a cost calculator to work out those prices. A builder doesn't go onto a cost calculator to work out what this particular property is going to build so he can put a tender in. But that seems to have been acceptable from an insurance point of view. And I've been very critical of those over the years and certainly on the back of ATSIC doing their searches as well. I did a, a, a ATSIC did a report, sorry, in 2005 on the accuracy of cost calculators and found them from highest to lowest to be out by around 137%. I hadn't seen an update on that for a very long time, so I did my up, uh, review of that in 2020 and I used six calculators and we'd just done a full bills of quantities for a builder who was building a property in New South Wales. So I thought, okay, I'm going to use that property, uh, which we know the actual cost because we counted taps and tiles and we did all that. I want to see what I can get out of, say, six calculators on insurers' websites, which I did. And I found the range to be out by 125%. Now, I was challenged uh, just recently uh, talking to some people and they said, oh, we'd love to see an update on that. I've gone back onto those six calculators and four of them do not exist on those insurers' oh, websites wow. <laughs> anymore. Two of them have a big disclaimer underneath there saying, you know, we can't, you know, these aren't accurate, you know, to get a proper you know, cost analysis, you should engage a quantity surveyor or a valuer, albeit I think that's still wrong, but uh, the reality is they're still sort of noting that. But you're starting to see that there's a little level of, you know, exposure here because 
a cost calculator was a tool to give a high-level understanding of something, not what you are actually going to sign a contract for with a builder or not what you are actually going to insure your property for. And it is certainly not allowing for what things are going to cost in time when you are actually going to be rebuilding this property. Well, the problem with that, though, is that, you know, okay, so my house burns down today or hopefully not um, or uh, goes underwater today. So then I've got my house insured, even assuming that I've got it accurately insured, then you've got to go through the whole process of, you know, getting your insurance paid, I guess, or working out new plans, new approvals, new builder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and that goes in the pipeline. So at what point does the insurance company pay out? Because, and then also you've got accommodation. So you've got usually you've got limited period accommodation, which I hear doesn't often cover the actual period of time that you're out as well. So there's lots of other ways you can be yep. underinsured. But just that time lag, particularly in, a, in an environment with shortage of trades and, and increasing costs, who bears that? Does the insurance company make a settlement as quickly as possible and then leave you with the, the money to allocate as you want? Or do they actually pay out um, the builder's contract when the builder can actually start the work? Or is it different by insurance company, by insurance company? Yeah. Well, if you're coming up with a a sums insured, so in the residential policy, there are usually two two main sort of ways you can go. You can go sums insured or you can go total replacement. So total replacement, people see those words and go, oh, Mm. that's what I want. It's just total replacement. But the reality is if you have a four-bedroom brick veneer home, that insurer has just got to rebuild a four-bedroom brick veneer home. It may not be the same level of finish inside or the exact Mm. same style, right? So the reality is that's what that replacement is. Now, if that insurer is also using, you know, a builder that they do a lot of work with, they get discounts. I mean, I do expert witness and I'm always sort of looking at these things and they, if they're going to settle, uh, you know, yeah. an insurer may say to someone, you know, we're going to settle, we're not going to rebuild, but we'll give you the 400000 payout. Well, you know, mum and dad isn't getting the discount from yeah. the builder. So, and and the scope isn't necessarily exactly mm. the same. It's not the exact same finish and style and those kind of things. So, the other way is sums insured, a bit like in car insurance and agreed and agreed value, right? So your sums insured would be where you come up with what that amount's going to be that you want and then you will pay a premium accordingly. So in that instance, that's certainly where you would add in your cost escalations so that you know that you're going to have enough, you're allowing for what that time would be. So yes, you would be covered. We all want to pay less insurance though, don't we? So I guess that may well be yep. our own... Um reluctance <laughs> to have high insurance costs that results in under insurance so not only potentially are we using the wrong tools or no tools but we think oh no look i really don't want to pay four grand if i can get away paying three and what's the odds it's not going to burn down anyway i'll i'll run that risk you know um and yeah. i guess that's that's a danger isn't it to all of us it's no different to car insurance and health insurance and all those things. It is the name of the game of insurance. So the the reality will be, yes, you know, we don't want to be overpaying, but you know, whatever that premium is over the next say ten or fifteen years, if you divide it by, you know, that and it works out at, you know, three hundred dollars a year or whatever it might be, I mean, if you're short three hundred thousand on your property there's a big difference i think you need to weigh it up over the mm. journey uh of what that will be uh and certainly the exposure is you know, especially when to make commercial property. yeah i mean i think the, the, the these things wipe you out right like if you get phone insurance 150 bucks a year or something you lose your phone you know a couple of grand life goes on right but if you you know you've got a million dollar debt on a property and it burns down and that land value is anywhere five hundred thousand. Then you got to bulldoze it. You know what I mean? Um, and you've got still got a million dollar mortgage. Well, you're bankrupt, right? If you don't have cover, and that's that's basically there's no way out of it. And you know, if that was all your life no, savings was in that property, so the sake of not and that's yeah. worse. That's worse in a category event like up in mm, Lismore, yeah. right? Because if that property is now, if you cannot get insurance on it, either can mm. the next person mm. buying it. How are you going to be able to buy that? Because part of your mortgage is going to be you have to have yeah. insurance, the initial yeah. one. You're not even going to be yeah. able to buy it. So it's not you can't even sell it. And its value would be nothing, right? So not only has it been destroyed, you didn't have insurance on it, but no one's going to want to 
buy it or live there, especially if a council is going to say, like, condemn you, it. you've just and, got and nothing. It's in a flood zone, everybody knows, so it's devalued anyway for that reason. And then, then you've got to pay yep. for somewhere else to live. But on the strata side of things, so you talked earlier about a developer you sort of did some comparisons on with those calculators versus the, the work that you guys had done. So with strata, yep. every so many years, they need to get a valuation done on these buildings. And this is yep. magnitude. This is a greater magnitude now because an individual house is one owner or a couple perhaps own that property. It's one dwelling. Whereas you've got a block of units, it might be six, it might be 60, it might be more than that. And if they're relying yep. on a valuer to come up with that, and that's common practice, by the way. This is common practice. I read strata reports all the time, and, and there's also a requirement yep. in New South Wales anyway that they have to get a valuation every so many years. There's no requirement, actually, yep. that that valuation um, has to be conducted by a quantity surveyor. Well, it's not a valuation, is it, if it's no. a quantity surveyor? But so there's a potential for under-insurance. So I guess your um, statistic of 90, early 90% percent of Australian dwellings underinsured. does that include though, all those apartment buildings? Yeah, and the the reality there is is that that then would go because they're not treated. It's treated mm. as one, right? That strata is treated as one property, not right. sixty yeah. in that instance, right? So you know, then you start to look at the onus on on duty of care that you've got an owners corporation or a body corporate that has organised to get that done, and you know, another owner in that property uh, has been you know they've had insurance on a property. That hasn't been calculated properly. Who's mm. at fault there? You know, when that hasn't been done through the right channels or whatever it might be. And then, in the instance of it being a commercial property or a strata property, that there may be a co-insurance. You deliberately didn't insure it for the full amount, so therefore we're only going to pay out X some percentage as well on the actual payment. Suddenly you are short. Uh, and the reality, therefore, would be that you've got a lot of property that has been undercalculated, uh, and you've also got your, you know, the individual owners in those would have their own contents insurance. But certainly, you know, who who is now responsible in this point that this property was, de you know, deliberately or not through the right channels underinsured? And you know, if you're taking that to a to a court case, or certainly, you know, going up against, you know, what was best practice, you know. I think some of the the, tinger, uh, the tick boxing of you know, cost calculators that is not the right way of going about it. This is uh, it is actually quite alarming because this is the first time I've ever thought of this. I think um, this is widespread. I mean, I've never seen a strata report because we do look at the sum insured and and um, and the valuation. I don't think I've ever seen one where it wasn't relying on a valuation. So that means that they're like you say yeah. using the wrong tool, using a screwdriver to hammer in a nail. Yeah, and they'll often have a disclaimer in the valuation report uh, under the, the little section that they have as replacement costs that we can't stand by these costs and you need to engage the services <laughs> of a quantity surveyor. I, I have valuers that ring up and you know ask me all the time that, hey, I've got a, a three-storey red brick walk-up in Coogee that I need to do a replacement cost estimate on. How much a square <laughs> metre should I be putting on it? Now, there's two big problems there. A, they're ringing someone who does it for a living and is the only qualified profession to do so. And B, they're more than happy for me to give them a cost over the phone where I haven't yeah, even been to right. the site, measured it up, you know. So it just kind of shows the mentality around it. So, you know, we're throwing sort of, you know, to a certain degree part of this property owners under the bus that there's a lack of education and naivety towards property under insurance. But, you know, it's supported very sort of robustly by, say, the financial lines that don't give it enough cred and, you know, valuers that don't even give it the right cred. So, you know, what hope have people got? So what do you think the solution is? is? Is a regulation, like if you had the dream scenario tomorrow, obviously you guys are incentivized to get this uh, changed. You know, you're, <laughs> you work in this industry, yeah. right? So everyone should be doing this. Yeah. Um, I mean, is it? Do you think it's really uh, a good option for every you know residential property to engage a you know quantity surveyor to to figure it out, or do you think they should just go right? Well, look, you know, maybe I it would be to replace it's a million dollars. Maybe I should just take out one point three. You know, like should people just overinsure themselves um, more than what they think it would cost just to save the hassle? Because that additionally, you pay insurance. Would that just cover your cost anyway? Yeah, okay. So he, my 10 cents on that and my dream will we'll get to the end. The The reality is is that 
ordinarily when there's a, a category event, so say a, a hailstorm or a, a big storm comes through and it'll sort of decimate a postcode, for the want of a better word, right? Now, ordinarily, it might be four homes that are destroyed in that postcode, so pick a, like Marrickville, right? Um, what, what will then happen is, you know, uh, insurers will then sort of increase the premium on all property in that particular postcode. So even though your house wasn't destroyed, you as part of that community are going to be helping yeah. to rebuild that, right? The reality here is is that the category event that we've just gone with the East Coast Low it was so big, that's national. It's going to be nation-based, right? And it's certainly state-based. You got a property in Broken Hill, your premium's going up because of what's happening on the east coast, right? So it's not. It's no longer postcode. There are going to be insurers that leave the market and don't even go back into certain markets here. There would be issues now, probably even being able to try and get insurance in Lismore because insurers would be going. We're not taking on any new clients. We're not modifying any existing claims. We've got an embargo. Uh, in those areas. So you could even just be timed out um, even if you were looking at doing something. But the reality is what happens is when people aren't insuring or they're underinsuring, it doesn't cost the insurer any less to have to pay that property out, right? So, the, But the problem is they haven't got all the money coming into their coffers to mm. do so. So if they've got if they've only got 100 people in New South Wales that are insuring their property out of 1,000, then it's that 100 that are paying the premium to cover a bigger net, right? So if everyone took an appropriate level of insurance out, then you would exponentially see premiums come down because there's just more money in general coming in. It, it's kind of the double-edged sword, it's a right? Paradox, so that one, isn't but it? the reality <laughs> mm. absolutely. Now, what I what is my dream? My dream would be that it is mandatory that you have to get an independent person to come up. If they want to fix insurance in this country, you'd say it's mandatory. You have to untick mm. a box to say that you're going to get an independent person to look at it, right? But the trade-off to there should be that the client should be incentivised that they actually get a reduction on their premium. Now, there needs to be a percentage agreed on that, but let's say it's like 5% or 10%. Now, the reason I say that is is that... Well, the insurer is going to be potentially making more money because the premium's higher anyway, because it's now insured for the correct value, but they should be able to be rewarded for that and make it an incentive to get people on the right cover, and that would be the dream. Now, yes, that's incentivised by, well, I would have more reports to do and that, but the reality would be if it became mandatory, there'd be a lot mm. more players that want to now put their hand up and, and start doing that, right? So I'd have a lot yeah. more competition. Like you yeah. see that when there's a, you know, solar panel rollout, suddenly everyone can install mm. solar panels, right? Like, so it, it's not necessarily, it's not a personal thing that I'm suddenly yeah. going to be making more money because there would just be more people that take it on. But if you seriously want to get rid of an underinsurance issue in this country, and which is connected to homelessness and is connected to rental crises, mm. like the crisis of trying to find rental properties in these areas, they just wouldn't exist, right? Because the properties have been well, damaged. Also, I mean, the fact is that if you are adequately insured, then you can rebuild. And there are, particularly if we look yes. down the fires uh, in the South Coast back at the beginning of 2020, there are people that haven't rebuilt because they were underinsured. And nope. so those people are then finding elsewhere to live. And it might be that they're homeless or it might be that they're taking rental accommodation, which otherwise they'd be able to be in their own home. So you can see the knock-on effect. If you, They're still in camper vans yeah, and caravans on the South Coast at yeah. showgrounds. Yep, because they can't. They, they they got no rentals there because there's well, no well, market. You know, the, yeah, that's another story. We, we need to do an episode, on, I think, on the mm. uh, short-term rental market that's also blossomed through the COVID period and, and had an impact or had a um, an effect on this, this problem as well. Um, back in episode 239, we interviewed um, climate economist Nikki Hutley, and she's a uh, counsel of the Climate Council, and there's a map that they have on their website. So if you want to go back to that that um, episode and if anyone's interested and you can actually look at a map anywhere in Australia and see the areas that are becoming um, increasingly uninsurable due to climate change. So this is a very real issue. Yep. And, and I think what you're saying there's really interesting, Marty, about, yeah, if we all actually were able to get the accurate information which allowed us to actually uh, insure our homes adequately, then you know, that's a real rising tide thing, isn't it, really, that you've you've got a situation where you've got more money in the pool and so therefore there's less impost on those small percentage of people that actually are adequately insuring their property, which is a problem. 
because there's a big gap then, yes. isn't there? I mean, it almost does need a big campaign to act, to get more people doing this, so therefore that defray the cost. Yeah, there's the heavy lifting's being done mm. by the few, right? Which is probably quite common in multiple industries. But the reality will be that. You know, the, the people who are insured and paying the premium are paying a higher premium because less, you know, less people have now, mm. you know, taking it or leaving the market. Uh, and the reality is, as Chris touched on before, that you know, this is a if you've got a property that's over a million dollars, or even if you don't, I mean, you're talking about you know a median house price of a million dollars. Like this ends mm. you, you know, if you don't have insurance and. You, it's hard enough to save that kind of money over a lifetime, let alone be at fifty or sixty and got ten years of a working life. Yeah, and also right. the yeah, I mean, it's not just yeah, yeah, and it's not just in homes, is it? It's like life insurance, income no. protection. Mm. Um, you know, it's lots health insurance. You know, there's lots of insurance that we are uninsured for. Is it most prolific in the building industry, or is it sort of across the board? The, it's like you know, ten percent of us insure ourselves uh, correctly, and ninety percent of us don't. Yeah. Uh, Across the board, Australia is one of the most underinsured countries in the world across right, all mate. facets of insurance. <laughs> so let's let's, yep. let's Won't get happen to some, me. Um, I think that we've got to all start thinking, well, actually, it's all, all very close to home every time there's a new natural disaster. But let's get some understanding around the impact of rising cost of building. Um we, yep. you know, I, I was at a presentation you gave just over a month ago and, and you really went through some quite alarming increases. Do you want to share some of that information with us so we can sort of get our sense of really how much more expensive it is to build a building now? But also not only that, but how much of this might be here to stay versus how much of it is um, a bit of a like the blockage in the pipe, you know, so there's... there's yeah. So Australia, uh, there are pros and cons in everything that happened in life, right? And one of the pros with our lockdowns, you know, being an island, we locked down Australia really quickly and with the epidemic, right? Now, uh, you know, sorry, the pandemic. Now, the reality there is is that that has the, – the, the negative on that is the fact that we bring in a lot of material. So 60% of our building materials in this country come from China, so we are sitting as a bit of a lag behind the rest of the world with our, some of our supply and pressures that are coming in regards to material supply. So the US is up about 20.5% in construction costs. Uh, the UK is up about 21.5%. We're sitting just behind that. If you map the most expensive countries in regards to cost of construction costs going up, out of about 40 uh, cities that we looked at, Sydney is the most expensive one from Australia, and that's about halfway down the list. So you're talking about, you know, Tokyo and Geneva and London and those kind of places being at the top uh, of the list, San Francisco, and, and yet Sydney is halfway down because we're sitting down there behind that lag. The US has had a 25% increase in housing approvals on last year. So they're going through this property sort of mm. rebuild boom now the problem there is well, we can't get materials out of the u.s mm. they need them you know and same of these other countries who are having these same sort of problems you know the material isn't coming in here because they need it so we're seeing big delays in that uh last year you were talking about if you needed you know reinforcement pipe for stormwater for subdivisions above 375 mil it was a 52 week <laughs> lead time <laughs> Uh, you know, like a subdivision can be built in four months, and yet it was a fifty-two week lead time just for the so pipe. So that's that's increasing uh, cost of everything, really. When you think about, yeah, it's holding costs, the interest, mm. all those kind of things. Good there's a, there's a flow on there, right? You can't build anything if you so, can't actually connect it to the infrastructure. Then you, yep. you can't build at all. If you like what you're hearing here, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars, please. Every review helps make it easier for other people to find us and hear what our amazing guests have to say. We love hearing your questions and we're planning more listener Q&A episodes. Please send your questions in. You can send them via the website, which is theelephantintheroom.com.au or directly via email to questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. Yeah, so then there are then there are sort of you know there's there's remodels in trying to you know redesign that doesn't yeah. need that type of pipe or size pipe mm. or whatever it might be, right? So there's some every sort of way you're looking, it's it's costing a little bit more. 
I mean, you're looking at the high-volume builders, so your Metricons mm. and all those kind of properties that, you know, their typical average build time was around 26 weeks. It blew out by an additional 16 yeah, wow. weeks. There you go. Now, they weren't increasing their construction costs in terms of contracts, right? But they're, they're, they're absorbing 16 weeks of holding costs and, you know, their overheads mm. and that sort of stuff on a property that isn't being passed on and couldn't mm. be passed on. So the reality is, is that the time was getting blown out exponentially on being able to deliver these. Um, you know, the, the looking at, we haven't had migration in this country for the last few years. So you know, there is over a hundred thousand, uh, vacancies in the construction sector that we need right mm. now uh like we're short now uh there's been so many uh, building companies go under in the last and that would have been part of the presentation i spoke to you veronica about just you know the list of some of the big players that have left left our landscape uh, you know two companies uh you know in particular had when you add it together had 2.5 billion dollars in their property pipeline and that's just two companies out of around 80 mm. that have left uh and you know last last financial year there was 3,917 properties put into liquidation or administration in australia and 28 percent of them were from the building mm. sector so when we're talking about needing you know having or having supply and demand issues we also need builders yeah. And these builders that are leaving these properties half built, well, someone mm. else has got to come in and do that. And that costs more to do. You know, that new builder's taking on that risk and whatever that might be. Um, you know, the, the Australian um, uh, Professional Builders Association researched 750 builders and they found that over 50% of them in Australia were running at negative equity. So they're, they're forecasting that. You know, there'll be about another nine percent of building companies leave the space by the end of next year. That'll be in the thousands. Mm. So, you know, we're working with builders now, doing their tenders for jobs that they've got coming up, and they're booked out for twenty twenty three. So, you know, you have a problem in your house burning down next month. It's hard yeah. to get a builder, mm. right? And the reality there will be, you know, if you cannot wait that long and all those kind of things, you're going to pay for it. So, Marty, I mean, the, um, all these sort of builders going under, is there a part of that is that they're fixed price contracts that they committed to before all these increases? Have you seen that, you know, a bit of government stepping in and giving builders a bit of leeway here and saying, hey, I know you signed up to these contracts, but, you know, you either go under if you sort of try to do that. So, rather than that's not a great outcome for the consumer, right? Because the builder goes under, they get left with a site, Maybe something half built. Yeah, um, we've had clients in this situation, a couple of clients, to be honest. Um, you know, yep. or you know, for example, they're giving the builder and saying, "Hang on a sec, you've got the ability to renegotiate this within reason." Then the consumer has to come up with that. Um, otherwise, the you know the builder just gives the builder a little bit of protection because no one could foresee what happened, and you know it's it's a bit hard that they're basically the one carrying the can. Plus, the consumer doesn't get a doesn't get a house built, and then they've got to pay hot more anyway. So. Yeah, that's right. And it, it, it's always going to cost you more when you've yeah. got to get another builder in, right? So even if the contract doesn't say that, we say to some of our clients that, you know, be careful yeah, with exactly. that, you know, you know, <laughs> right? Because at the end of the day, um, no, contractually you are right. They can't pass on that variation for that increase in construction cost, right? But they leave the site. The time it's going to take you to get a new builder and they're going to then charge you more because of the risk they're taking on the existing works and it's going to cost more. And you know what? They're going to be charging the same in the increased timber price because, A, they're signing a new contract. They're going to make sure that they've got it at the mm. new price, right? So it's going to cost you more anyway. Whether it you, you know right or wrong, you, have the, you need to have a little bit of flexibility around that. The, I was quite critical of Home Builder when it first came out. Uh, for some other reasons, but certainly, you know, we saw this even back to GFC. I I was you know, managing uh, construction company, uh, Courtney Surveying Company during that time, so you know, I was able to see and draw parallels between the GFC and the pandemic. And it, it's funny that you know, during the GFC, at the end of that, we had the building education revolution rollout, where they were mm. you know stimulating uh, through stimulus money for schools and those kind of things. And I remember coming in and doing audits on. You know, toilet blocks, you know, built at, you know, Walgett and all these different places for hundreds of thousands of dollars because it was just eye gouging, you know, um, through the stimulus. The thing with Home Builder, what happened there with the 25,000 sort of cash back is pretty well builders just add it to the top, right? Because the client's getting it back. So it added on. But what, what it did do, which no one really, you know, 
foresaw at the start was builders took on work that they aren't revved up to take on. So, you know, the the builder that is only doing three or four projects a year went, oh, and locked in 10 contracts. Well, the problem is they're not they're not they're not upskilled or have the right people in right positions to manage 10 clients yeah. all at once. So then what happens is they want to start those so that they got the grant and that they were under construction, they had time limits, but you know, they were hemorrhaging. They just they bit way yeah. too much. And and we saw that with big players. You know, so I'm picking on a builder that does ten or three and should have done, you know, and was doing ten. But there's no different to, you know, say a, a Metricon that was doing five thousand that tried to do seven thousand. Yeah. You know, the reality is they couldn't draw on finding those extra resources to build those two thousand homes. Everyone else was, you know, locking up and taking these projects. So the reality is, is that they were so over sort of exposed in regards to their work volumes that they couldn't deliver so you on say that's been a massive failure that that policy because all it really do is just shot the building industry in the foot it just basically you know forced a lot of demand that was probably going to be there anyway you know the reality is it yeah, was I, you know the damn i agree the demand was always going to yeah. be there right the, but they like didn't the know build, that the, you know, know. They didn't yeah. know that at the time, right? Yeah, that's right. So I think that the stimulus was probably required uh, from from that injection. But the thing is, it, it wasn't – there was no sort of real thought process given to what the other end of it yeah. looked like and how that would be managed out. You know, likewise, I, I think, you know, hindsight's wonderful, but certainly, you know, allowing – if that was the case – allowing you know some clauses to be put in contracts as a protection piece mm. around that or whatever it might be but certainly um you know builders were taking on work that they just weren't sort of revved well, there's up other to ways do. of throwing money into uh, the economy out there the thing yeah, too though now chris i mean you can point to this but if the builder comes to a first home buyer for argument's sake or somebody who's upgrading and stretched in order to be able to get this new home built on this block of land and they say, right, well, it's costing me an extra 20% or whatever, I need to pass some of that cost on to you, otherwise I'm ultimately going to go broke and you're going to have to go to another builder and it's going to cost you anyway, so you better off to stick with me. And then the the owner or the person that's engaged in to build this property can't get more money. I mean, then what happens? So, you know, because now we've got a situation with rising interest rates and, and squeeze on capacity, on, on borrowing capacity. So that causes its own set of issues, correct? Well, I mean, I mean, it does run responsible lending. So a bank can only really responsibly, you know, in law, mm. um, lend you an amount based on what you can afford, based on your income. And so if you did stretch to your maximum, then you'd be in trouble. And if that maximum's fallen since now be a new loan application, it wouldn't be back of when you first got the construction loan contract. Um, so be reassessment. So that would be, yeah, absolutely. Your maximum's reduced thirty percent. So if you, for example, could have borrowed a million dollars to do that build and buy that land, well now you can only borrow, you know, seven fifty. Yeah, well the bank can't really lend you more money, right? Um, mm. The other issue is valuation. Yeah. You know, the, the valuations are all fine when you, you know, in twenty twenty one, twenty twenty two vows. It's a real hit and miss. It's it, it, it came yeah, back it's, a bit. It's, we're just getting some super, super low vowels, which clients are like shouting at us and saying, yeah. how is that right? You know, what was he thinking? And I was like, he's getting paid, you know, about $50 to do that. And he did about 13 that day. So he didn't put much thought into it. He was just bloody ticking a box and going to the next property. Um, and then we're getting vowels that, you know, they wouldn't even have sold for that in 2021. Like it's just, um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's just crazy. So if you get a low vowel on a building contract, and your building price has gone up, then you, you can basically go up to some lenders will do up to 95%. Um, and you might have only had an 80% loan, so you might be able to go to some, but they're not going to want to take over construction midway. Mm. Um, and no. so it's a it's a potentially your lender that you know you originally got a contract at 80% LVR um, based on a construction value that was, you know, when you first uh, applied for the loan, but maybe now you have to pay a big lender's mortgage insurance. Um to also do that construction. So, yeah, it's a very tricky situation um, if you haven't got the cash. And it's, I think there's a lot of people don't think about that with the the whole house and land package. It's targeted at the affordability sector. It's targeted mm. at people with small deposits. Um, and it's not, you know, it's a highly risky transaction. You've got a land price, you've got to build. And if your valuation doesn't stack up or something goes wrong, well, then it's all over, right? Because um, you've got no other buffers. I think we have short memories too. Like we talk about Australians being underinsured and the most underinsured country in the world. 
well, one of the most underinsured countries in the world. And you know, yeah, we threw out some comments like, you know, she'll be right or it won't happen to me. But I think as, especially in the Australian property market, we have we have very short memories. So to give an example, you know, during COVID, you know, there was you know, rental squeezes in regards to, uh, you know, rent were going up, but then, you know, trying to secure uh, tenants and, and those kind of things. And, and the reality was is that I think a lot of investors realised they didn't probably have much in the kitty, um, you know, to support them on their investments and those kind of things. So if someone, you know, they lost someone, you know, they, they couldn't, couldn't cover their mortgage in that regard, right? And yet, I talk to people now, not long really after the the back of when you know, what we're saying was the end of the pandemic, and people are back on a knife edge taking on investment properties, right? So the reality is we didn't really learn much from that. And uh, another example is I was speaking to an insurance broker about a month ago, and they've got a, a client that is up in around the Lismore area, and they're in a block of seven or nine units and the water came to the back door of the property it didn't get in but it was lapping the back door of the property and the insurance broker has said to them look i think you need to take out flood cover uh and it was going to cost each unit holder another couple of hundred dollars or something on the premium and they've come back and gone no like we didn't get the flood didn't get the water in this time so why you know we're never going to get it in and i'm kind of like well you know at what point do we take take it a little bit more seriously? You know, the water was at the back door and their their example of looking at that through their lens is, well, this was a big flood that didn't get in, so we'll so be right. This is the problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, and the, earlier on we were saying that councils, you know, uh, have the responsibility for this, et cetera, et cetera. But then in that particular instance, you've got individual property owners who, you know, honestly, they don't – We until, honestly, until we interviewed Margaret Cook, I guess I didn't even think too much about different floods – Every flood is different for yeah, starters. That's... But if you live in a zone like that, you, you really do need to educate yourself as to what the risks are. I think that that's just actually your responsibility as a property owner. See, that responsibility, in my view, should be put on those people. It shouldn't be spread around. You know, if you get actually give an yep. opportunity to do something about it and you don't do something about it, then, you know, so there's there's a lot of issues here at play, I guess. Another knock-on effect of this yep. sort of... Um, the shortage of, of builders, the, you know, more builders going out of business, the squeeze on profits because of the work that was taken on uh, when those incentives were in place. And it's funny, we interviewed um, a building inspector called Zahir Khalil um, on your first home buyer guide podcast. And we came across him because he's he's started getting a bit of renown for himself with his TikTok videos. And he videos He's very. He's a builder himself, and he's he's very well versed on the various building codes. And he goes through yep. and he videos these properties as he inspects them, and shows you how how some of this shoddy workmanship. It's uh, um, scary, you know. He's and he's yep. he told us examples of where they have been able to. This these are pre-purchasing or they're pre-completion inspections that people have engaged his company, he and his company to do. And they go in and, like, the walls are bowed, for instance. So there's just this workmanship that's shocking everywhere, uh, waterproofing, a whole bunch of um, non-built-to-code buildings, shortcuts, um, inability to supervise multiple sites. There's all these reasons why you would have trades on site that would actually uh, build in a very shoddy, slapdash fashion. But the fact that this guy can actually, he's got quite a number. We'll have to put the link in the show notes so you can have a look at some of these videos if you want. The the fact that there was just so many, these are common. He said that there were some builders that have agreed to rectify the works on the proviso that he removes the the videos from his website, which he's done as long as they do the works. But, you know, that's then also going back and fixing all that is um, (laughs) – adding to the problem really isn't it they're not doing the right work in the first place i was alarmed i know we're going off on on insurance as a topic here i was actually really alarmed to find that waterproofers sign their own waterproofing certificate (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and in new south wales uh when, when you get a construction certificate on a residential property the mandatory critical stage, so part of the construction certificate is that there are mandatory inspections that need to be done by the private certifier. One of them is is the waterproofing, mm. and they've only got to inspect 10% of the waterproofing. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> I'm talk- if you're talking about 100 units being yeah. built, you know, they've only got to go and inspect mm. 10. Yeah. You know, like, you know, so the reality is is that you know, we don't do that, right? I mean, uh, uh, 
for people who want to read about defects in properties on the back of mascot and all those kind of things, certainly um, a paper was written by Dr. Mm. Nicole Johnson. Uh, she yeah. was at Deakin University and did a joint one with Griffith University on the most common defects in properties, and they bring it down to about four or five of them. Water egress was one of them. But interestingly enough, when they dove into that even deeper, um, they, they, they worked out that nearly 60% of all of those defects could have been avoided through better design documentation yeah. at the start. Yeah. So, you know, I think we, we rush into some of these developments because time is money and we just get going on those kind of things. And of the ones that were in the construction phase, which was, if you work on the, the opposite, 40 to 50% of them, it came down to squeezing subcontractors so much with the price point that, you know, they've got to cut mm. corners. They've got to use untrained people or, and it came down to morale and all those kind of things. So the reality is, is that there are, a lot of common defects in there that you know we could be if you if you go to say a european method of building uh if you watch grand designs uk and watch grand designs australia you know the polarizing thing is is that in a uk version there's a, pro a project manager and a quantity surveyor on the site nearly every day mm. yet in australia they're not yeah. You know, they'll just have a head supervisor from a building company there, right? So, uh, and, you know, in, in, a, in a European, ver there'll be a lot of independence, you know, independent uh, project manager. But certainly the QS is on the site every day. So every time that someone says, oh, we're going to have to rechange the wall here, is this going to cost more or what's this going to cost? There's a decision made then and there. They're managing the costs of the job. Whereas in Australia, it's come out once a month and, and walk around and see what you think. So... You know, we don't put enough – and, you know, look at architects. Um, I'm, I'm sure, you know, you've spoken to a few over the years, but interestingly enough, you know, most architects in the resi space aren't novated through the job. You know, they use an architect until they do their design at the start and then they just engage the builder and it's handed mm. over. Yet, you know, they don't have the architect working through doing additional detailed design when something needs to be changed and redraw it up so they know exactly how it's going to be fixed or mitigated or what have you. So – there seems to be a lack of having that independent project control group on a on a job for what is best for development or what is best for project as opposed to what is best for any one particular person's wallet. And I think that's the different mindset. That's a form of insurance in itself, really, organising or paying that additional money. And that's the problem mm. is the additional cost. Interesting you mentioned Nicole Johnson. We interviewed her back in episode 112 yep. on that exact report you're talking about. So if anyone's interested in that, right. that was very much, that was around Brilliant. strata buildings. And, and she even said herself it was a preliminary report. It wasn't even um, comprehensive and yet it was quite astounding, mm. very, very interesting. Um, but also what the Building Commissioner David Chandler has been doing as well has been really focusing on that problem being at the design end. So in New South Wales in particular, that whole model of design and construct um, yep. I think has been – That's for class it's, two exactly, buildings. Exactly, taken out of residential now, which is yep. good because that's been part yep. of the problem. And if and So if you're building a commercial building as design and construct, that means that the builder's basically designing it as they go, then because you've generally yep. got one, cust one customer, there's one – customer for your building as opposed to a residential building where you've got maybe a hundred unit um, purchases or buying and they don't even know who each other are until it settles and they form their first owners corporate their uh, first um yeah body corporate so uh, owners corporation yep. so you know and, and also most individual unit holders got no idea about a building and how they function or how it should be built or whatever so it's a completely different um type of building and type of ownership and, and the handover is completely different as well. And I think it's I think it's fair to say that, and nor should mm, they. No. You know, I, I think I think people are entitled to buy a property and not have a builder's no. degree. Mm. You know, exactly. like I, I think that there's there is you know there is some element to you know uh, you you probably should educate yourself a little bit, but at the end of the day, you know, you should be entitled to be able to buy a unit and not have to know whether waterproofing has been done to a certain code or whatever Absolutely it might sure be, the right? the expectation I mean, it's been done to a certain code. And I think that the issue here yeah. is there's been an opportunity for those who may be a little bit more, um, I don't know, self-interested and a little bit um, cynical perhaps to take advantage of that. And so it's a good yeah. thing in, in New South Wales anyway that, that the loop for that has been closed, so that is great. But back to... I think that, you know, the under-insurance issue here is, is I think potentially more of an issue with individual owners of, of Torrens Title 
properties. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, and look, it, it the big issue we see there is probably more the commercial side. So, yes, the mum and dad probably through the naivety, lack of education side of things, but certainly from a, the financial point of view with, say, commercial property, if you're underinsured, the insurer then deems you a co-insurer. Right. So you're a joint insurer. So for argument's sake, if you have a million-dollar property or it should be a million-dollar property and you decide to only insure it for 800000 you're deemed to be uh, only insuring it for 80% huh. of its value. So you, you become the co-insurer. In other words, you're taking the risk of the mm. other 20. So then if there's an issue, the insurer will only then pay out 80% of the eight hundred. So you're only going to get paid out 640000 in a total loss on your million-dollar property. And the reality is that is the exact same percentage for partial loss. So if they work that out on your full property, but you've only had the roof was destroyed at 200000 well, they're only going to pay you 80% mm. of the 200000 So, you know, with the commercial property, if you're underinsured, you certainly can have some big exposure uh, in regards to what you're going to get out. So obviously the assumption is that if you're in a commercial property owner that you are commercially minded and able mm. to to you know assess all these these uh, risks, whereas the assumption being a residential property owner is just a domestic uh, customer and therefore not having that same understanding or expectation. Uh, it's a little bit the same in, in the auction laws in New South Wales. You know, like in there's an all these uh, requirements. Um, for, like for instance, bidders have to register to bid at auction in New South Wales um, for residential yep. property. You don't have to register for commercial because the the rules aren't as tight. Because the, the assumption is that you you're sort of more fiscally aware or smarter or something mm. than a residential buyer. Yeah, and same as with building code. Like you know, in terms of building qualifications in in New South Wales, I think the big difference there, Veronica, is is that. Generally speaking, a mum and dad person in the suburbs for their house insurance will go direct to mm -hmm. the insurer, yep. whereas a commercial client will go through an insurance yeah. broker. Yep. So they're getting that extra level of education mm. along the way. So they're getting the insurance broker in their ear saying, have you had this assessed properly? Like we need to probably have this certified to make sure that it's the yep. right value or have you considered this or have you considered that? Whereas... Uh, someone jumping online and going direct to an insurer isn't necessarily having those same touch points or education along the way. Yeah, money. I mean, I guess it's like, let's say you're listening to this, you think you've got enough insurance, even if you've, um, I mean, even for me, I up my insurance you know, late, last year, I was looking at the trees around me and all that, and I was just like, I don't think I'd be able to replace my home for what it's insured for, you know, it wouldn't take one of those big trees to fall over and um, yeah, it'd be ripe out our house and so... And I noticed that the bulk discounting was was quite good actually. So I doubled my cover and my premium didn't anywhere near double. Um, and yeah. I think what's interesting to know with any insurance is what's not covered. Like, you know, mm. like Allianz, for example. Like if you're not in your home for more than 60 days and you don't tell the insurer, like you go on a three-month holiday and something happens, you know, after 60 days, I'm pretty sure you're not covered. Like, oh, wow. You know, um, <laughs> yeah. like termites, for example, Um you know, people might think that you're covered for termites, but I don't think you're covered for termites. And um, that's another risk, you know. Like, so what are I some of the things where people, <laughs> yeah, like think people think, well, you know, she'll be right. I've got insurance. I'm fine. And a lot of people think this around like, you know, income protection and life insurance. And, you know, sometimes they, they don't understand yep. the clauses that. So what are some of the things that people catch people out there that people even are insured? Yeah, security systems are a good one as well. You know, the, on their policy, they'll say we have a security system or, or this or that. But you know, it and they have insurance for ten years, but after three years, it stops working and they don't mm. update it, or they do a bit of a reno and they change things around, or they put in you know different windows, or you know those kind of things are, are certainly uh, one of them. Fire alarms are obviously a, a big sort of part of updating and changing things around and the like. But the 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 reality is is that it comes down to priorities and we have to change people's mindset around prioritizing so people will come as an example people will say to me money's really important to me uh you know if they're talking about a fee or something but they might drive a bmw you know so there is a cheaper car to buy than a bmw <laughs> now so at what point is it a mm, priority and absolutely. i guess when it comes back to say mm. insurance i know 
many people that would research the backside of a TV for a spare bedroom that will get used every now and then, and they'll research 10, and they'll go to JB Hi-Fi, and they'll play it against someone else, and they'll ask, they'll know how many USBs it's going to come with or how many HDMI outlets it'll come for, and it's a spare TV. But they will never, ever have uh, read their um, PDS for their insurance on their house. They would not know what percentage they get for consultants or what percentage they get for demolition on the back of their policy. And that's it's a priority. Mm. We haven't prioritised it. It's such a classic. I mean, we often make the same sort of comparison with how yeah. the assessment process people go through in buying a property. Yeah, you know, they, the they spend more time choosing a toaster. Um, and I guess insurance fits in the same category. It's complicated, expensive. You know, it's much better to go to level one thinking and go, oh, just go for the easy out because I don't, I don't want to have to think about it because it hurts my brain. But... To, and that's where I would say to someone, use an insurance mm. broker, even on your residential mm, yeah. house. I mean, in, in, in the residential sector, you know, it, it's next to nothing to use your insurance mm. broker. Yeah, yeah. All right. And they will advise you on this. Thanks what so I'm much, Marty. Have you got a uh, quick property <laughs> dumbo for us? Um, by the way, we, we sometimes forget to do this. I would love, if you've got any stories about, I mean, ensuring this conversation, there's probably thousands of them, but. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's certainly lots of Dumbo moments. I mean, we I think I spoke about the last one about someone who like, was a pub that was insured and probably another one would be another recent pub that we've just done and, um, you know, their idea was is that they only wanted to insure a certain part of, of the pub. They didn't want to insure all the accommodation at the back. Uh, they, were, you know, they were comfortable with that. They just wanted the pub to be done. So we did the assessment on, on the hotel sort of, the, the pub side of it, sorry, and, you know, they have now got a co-insurance issue because they didn't add the other policy to it. So when the insurer comes out and says, well, but you've only insured the pub, they just felt that that was the risk. Um, That was a bit they weren't comfortable with. But at the end of the day, it's all in together and they now have an under-insurance issue. So the reality is, is that they were kind of going about it the right way in regards to getting an independent assessment done, but they were still controlling it you know that the idea should be that get an independent person to come out and tell you what the total loss the total building will be uh yeah that that, we just had that recently you know i've got a um that is sad and avoidable stories like that i've got a dumbo story i'll tell you very quickly i was up at the gold coast with a friend of mine and up in queensland uh in the strata building if they're going to vote to do anything substantial they have to get 100 percent uh, agreement, right? So if they want to sell to a developer, for instance, or yep. whatever. So there was this um, building in Coolangatta. Thank you very much. Down in Coolangatta. So there's this building <laughs> that ev- every front apartment had a big, stonking big um, ocean view, but there was a site in front that could have become a development site, right? And one of the guys who lived in the building owned an apartment in the front building to protect his view. He bought it to preserve his view. And when he sold out of the the building that he was living in with view, he said he was going to sell that apartment and he offered it to the body corporate to say, if you guys all pitch in and buy this apartment from me, you can continue to preserve your view. And they turned him down. And right in front now is an entire massive big building that is obliterating, it's being wow. built, that is obliterating every single view in that building. Now, I have to say that has to be one of the biggest dumbos I've ever heard. <laughs> We we did we did it. I've you've just you've brought back an old memory. About ten or twelve years ago, we were doing a property up on the far north coast, right on the beach, and the new building code was that they could no longer build that close to the beach. So, what it had to act it was a big block, um, like in the th- in the thousands of square meters. So it basically meant if they knocked down that house and rebuilt. Uh, their dream home they wanted to do it needed to move up the site about 40 or 50 mm. meters so um, the idea was though that through a little bit of um, clever thinking by the architect if they basically knocked down the whole house except one wall it was still a renovation <laughs> as opposed to a new build so they basically were going to build this big house in the front come down and you know renovate around and, and include a little bit of this old house um, and that, that got through. That was fine. So it meant they could build their house right down on the sand, basically, where they wanted to go. And I get a phone call from the developer sort of fuming, going, right, I now need you to do an expert witness report for court. And I'm going, oh, what's going on? That communication wasn't 
expressly portrayed to the demolition company. So they came no. in and demolished the whole house and left one wall and they had it propped and that was what it was. But, uh, you know, the, the next day the rest of the demo crew came in just to clean up and went, oh, we still haven't finished. There's still that one oh, wall to come no. down. So the, the, the final wall came down and council were nice and handy on the site to go, right, now you've got to rebuild up the... <laughs> You can't rebuild down here. So there'll be a big legal stash over that. That was years and years ago. But a mate who, um, they're a developer and they were doing a, like a townhouse development up in Newcastle and they uh, had like an architect plan and then on that in colour they had like green and red around trees Um, and the person, uh, the, the, um, uh, the sort of what you call arborist sort of rocked up and printed it in black and white. <laughs> I thought you were going to say they were colourblind. <laughs> he took out the seven, like there was 20 trees. He took out um, 17 trees or something instead of three. Oh, no. <laughs> The whole, the whole oh site. So the whole site got basically decimated, and um, yeah, and then they rocked out, and there were three trees left. And there was meant to be seventeen trees left. Oh no! Uh, and laugh. so then the whole like That's it was bad. a massive uproar in the community because they're like, mm. hang on a sec, you're not meant to remove all these trees. And they had to redesign everything because it was like designing it all around the trees, and then it was all that was no trees, and um, yeah, I don't know where the story ended up, but he told me what had happened the day after. Uh. I was just like. Yeah, anyway. (laughs) On that note, we'll see you next week. (laughs) Thank you. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey. And most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo. (laughs) 